Dr. Stephen Brookfield shares about the skillful teacher on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. This is Bonnie Stahoviak, and I am thrilled to be welcoming back to the show, Dr. Stephen Brookfield. He is the John Ireland Endowed Chair in the School of Education at the University of St. Thomas. He began his teaching career in 1970, and he's worked in England, Canada, Australia, and the United States in a variety of college settings, and he's also written and edited 18 books on adult learning, teaching, critical thinking, discussion methods, and critical theory. Stephen Brookfield, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you, Bonnie. It is such an honor to get to talk to you. And when you were last on the show, I looked it up, it was back in September of 2014 for episode 15. And anyone listening should definitely go back and listen to that episode because today we're going to be talking about some different things. But I want to know, what have you been up to since September of 2014? What's been going on in your life? Oh, gosh, so much. Well, you know, I I play in a band, a punk rock band, lead a punk rock band called the 99ers. And our sixth album is in the can. So we're releasing the first single next week. And and that's a big part of my life, although it has nothing to do with the, uh, the higher educational side. In my more professional capacity, I've been working on the second edition of a book called Becoming a Critically Reflective Teacher that uh, came out in 1995. So that's way overdue for some uh, updating. And then I've been doing a lot of work Uh, around the issue of getting students to talk about issues of race in particular and the the dynamics of how we do that as white teachers in a largely white institution and how you understand the reluctance to engage in that conversation and, and what needs to be done really to create the conditions under which it's happening. So I expect in a couple of years there will probably be a book on that whole issue because it's been taking up a lot of my time, both in practice and in thought over the last decade or so. That was one of the things that struck me so much about your book. And somebody recently on iTunes wrote a review about this podcast and said that I really was very passionate or or I'm trying to think of the word that they use. They said, though, that I didn't gush too much. And I think I might gush too much on this episode as I talk about what your book has meant to me. I did not read the first edition. And you did talk a little bit about it, what the changes that you made, but it is such a powerful book. And I think one of the 
reasons that I love it so much and I will reread it and I've been recommending it like crazy both on the show and just to people in person is that you speak so much just about the pain of it all and the challenge of it all and especially you you have this chapter about race and as a Caucasian woman it's I mean it's some of the things that will come up and you you just articulate it so well so I'm glad that you're doing work on that and I would absolutely treasure a book. So if it it matters, I know there'll be a lot of people that will want to read that and will get so much out of it. So thanks for that update. I'd love to have a conversation with you about that sometime as well. Yeah, that would be great. And and thanks for your your approval. You know, you write this. I don't know how you feel about writing, but I I, I write uh, to be helpful to people. And you do it alone and you send it off to the publisher and not even as a paper file now. It's all, uh, you know, an email transaction. And you just have absolutely no idea if this means anything to anyone, unless someone actually bothers to email you or you tell you in person, as you, you just did, that this um, means something to them. And that's really the, the emotional fuel you need to keep going, uh, writing things, because I don't need to write anymore. And I keep telling myself, this is the absolute last book (laughs) I'm going to do. And then something else comes up and I think, oh, that's really intriguing. How am I going to work with this problem? And and that's how, you know, another book starts to to take shape. But I write mostly to be helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, it's not like I feel I have anything particularly profound to say. It's just, uh... The people I work with are all doing this difficult work in increasingly difficult circumstances as we get this consumerization of higher education and uh, the the greater constraints we're under and the increasing pressure to increase tuition revenues and to go out and seek a lot of grant money. And, and so you're working with a bigger and bigger groups and more and more diverse populations. And then you have the the culture of entitlement that a lot of my colleagues complain about. And, uh, you know, it's hard work. So I think the more that any of us share the struggles that we have and, and whatever paths we create to find our way out of those, you know, that's, I always like to read things like that by colleagues. So, so that, that's really what I'm trying to do. One of my colleagues invited me to tea the other day, which felt like it was something different because I don't drink coffee and it was fun that he has these really fancy teacups in his office and we both we found out through that conversation have a lot in common about our politics and he sent me an email after that that tea that we shared and signed his email in solidarity and I felt like your book is just in solidarity with those who just have such a passion for being skillful teachers. And today I know we're going to look at four different assumptions that you are making as you articulate throughout the book and throughout your work, what a skillful teacher is in the context there. And the first one, actually, it's actually your fourth one, but I'm going to, I'm going to start out with it today. You assume that college students of any age should be treated as adults. And I would just like to start with asking, what does it mean to treat a person as an adult? What does that mean? Yeah, and and in fact, I would say that, and it is a normative statement, 
just infused with value judgments, which I'll try and clarify. I, I actually think that anybody uh, of any age should be treated like an adult in the way that I'm framing it. So I think that when I you know, was raising my kids and I speak to friends' kids, no matter what their age, I try and treat them like an adult. And, and I, I, I know all, the, well, I don't know all of it, but I'm, I'm aware of literature on student development, moral development, cognitive development, which documents the real difficulty people between 18 and 22, if we're talking about traditional age students, the difficulty that they have in moving from a binary, dualistic way of thinking through to an awareness of relativistic, multiplistic reasoning, and then being able to get past that to a stage of informed commitment. And I know that that kind of reasoning is is hard and a lot of students are not there and have not really been prepared that well to move through those more adult modes of reasonings. But I think that we have to treat them as else. And by that, I mean that you, first of all, have to have an interest in what it is that the other person is thinking or experiencing or feeling. So I think at the core of all good education is finding out what's happening to people as they're in your classrooms and as they're grappling with whatever material you're giving them. So I think really an adult conversation or adult communication is one which is based on that level of mutuality, that you're not just working from your own knowledge framework or your own set of assumptions. You're trying to connect with somebody else and to find out, well, how are you responding to these ideas that we're discussing or what difficulties are you having with the skills that you're trying to learn. And a genuine interest in how people are experiencing those things is, I think, the foundation of adult communication. And if you look at, I don't know how much you want me to go into all this, Bonnie, but you know, in critical theory, a big influence in that area has been Jürgen Habermas, the critical theorist and, and uh, German critical theorist. He, he has argued in the past that the sign that you're entering adulthood is when you stop universalizing your own experiences and you stop thinking that the way you experience the world or the way you experience a particular learning unit or module it is the same as everybody else. Mm. And you start to realize there are multiple ways of interpreting this and responding to it and different people create meaning around it in different ways. So, so I think helping students understand that their experience, while it has generic elements, is, is very particular to them. And understanding there are multiple realities in the room, that's the beginning of at least from Habermas's viewpoint, and I find this very helpful to think this way, the beginning of becoming an adult. And, and I think you can, do, you can begin that journey at any age. So, you know, with, with kindergarten, with elementary school, a, a, a big part of teaching people is to realize that we're not a, a group of separate islands. We live in a community and, and part of negotiating all the different interests that we share is understanding that people are experiencing the world differently. And my gosh, you, you know, from that point of view, 
there is very little adult dialogue on the, in the political sphere these days, at least in terms of campaign rhetoric, because the, the awareness and the generosity of understanding that people see things in different ways is almost completely absent from that. Instead, there's this pre-adult insistence that the way that I experience the world, the way that I read it is the way that everybody else must see it. So for me, that's the basis of treating people as adults is trying to get into into subjective understanding as as Habermas called it, or perspective taking as Jack, Jack Mesereau, who I worked with for many years, called it realizing that your particular take on something is not the universal one, necessarily. Back on episode 62, there was a woman on named Rebecca Campbell. And she just briefly had mentioned during the episode, in fact, it may have even been in the recommendations piece of it, because it was very short, that we should never refer to our students as kids. And I've occasionally heard colleagues do that's never something that I've been felt any temptation to do or, or a slip of the tongue, that kind of thing. And I have always it has come easy to me to maybe not to treat as adults. I mean, in the sense of that word treat, <laughs> maybe I don't always treat people that are in their 60s as adults in, in terms of the, you, you are so right. There's so much to unpack here. But at any rate, after she mentioned that in the episode, I talked about it with some of my students who, who do mostly fit that 18 to 22 demographic. And one of the things I was so surprised by, I think maybe I, I thought maybe this is one where I get to say, gosh, you know, I do, I do treat you as adults and I don't call you kids, that, uh, that a number of them said, I don't feel like an adult. And in fact, I'm not an adult. And so we talked about what would they see as if they were an adult, what would that look like? What would their lives look like? And as you might expect, they would say, well, someday if I get married, then I'll be an adult. Or if I have children, then I'll be an adult. Or if I own a home, they had they had some external references to things like that. But it, it does lead me to ask one other question about this treating college students as adults. Is it important to have a conversation about us treating our learners as adults? Or would that just be too big to unpack? And should we just model it for them? Oh, no, I think we need to have an explicit conversation uh, and be very public uh, about this. You know, I've, I've visited junior highs, high schools in, in the Twin Cities where there are publications, uh, sorry, not publications, it's a very scholarly <laughs> Freudian slip. There are conversations with students about how are we going to make decisions that affect us as a school community? How are we going to treat each other? How are we going to talk to each other? And, and those sorts of conversations, my gosh, if you want to foster any kind of democratic spirit in people, that you absolutely have, that should be a, a major part of the school curriculum. So I think you do make it very explicit. So I think this, this, this word adult is a big normative word, and uh, a, a lot of people, I imagine, think that being adult means being completely in control, not being thrown too badly by circumstances, knowing what to do in every situation, having a lot of wisdom to draw on that guides our actions to successful fruition. 
you know, and by that definition, well, I guess I'm adult sometimes, but there's lots of times when I'm not, and I, you know, it's sort of, I think, tied up with some of the impostorship that I know what we might touch on later, mm-hmm. that I don't feel adult at all. I feel at sea and just, I think in the first chapter of The Schoolful Teacher, I use the metaphor of muddling through, informed muddling through. <laughs> That's really how I think about my practice as a teacher. I'm, I'm muddling through it. I think what a lot of traditional age college students resist, though, is being asked to have an active voice and role in determining their own future in, in, in small ways, you know, like asking a group when you think we should take a break, or big ways like working with the class to say, well, you know, what would be the most important things for us to consider in this course, helping help me construct the curriculum with you. You ask a group of 18-year-olds those things, and they just look at you as if, you know, well, well you're, you're supposed to do this. You get paid the not-so-big bucks to do this. You know, I'm just a student. I show up. That's all I've got to do. And it's, a, it's over a four-year period. It's a, a socialization or an initiation process in, in hopefully getting people to be more and more comfortable with that. Um, but I've seen exactly that same response in colleagues when we go to a faculty meeting and the dean or the provost says, well, you know, you, we're all adults. I'm not going to lay this out for you. I want you to generate what the university's or the school's response should be to this problem. And, you know, I and my colleagues say, well, you know, to hell with that. You get paid money to be the dean and the uh, and the provost and you have more knowledge of this than me so you know you go ahead and and, and do your job um so so I, I think that this is not just a matter of chronological age we're talking about i i see adult behaviors in myself and i see very unadult behaviors in myself even though I'm 67 and you'd think I, I, by now, would be behaving in an adult way. In, in many ways, I'm <laughs> the anti-adult, without giving too much away of my personal life. <laughs> As the mother of two small children and just how much they teach me every day, I wish we all could also be treating each other as children from the sense of how fun it is to watch young children get so curious and the way that they take in the world, it would be just so fun to be with 18 to 22 year olds who had somehow been able to navigate through the educational system while still maintaining that curiosity and and passion for learning. Yeah. The next assumption you have is that skillful teaching is whatever helps students learn. What are some surprising approaches that you have found that help students learn that weren't initially apparent to you when you first started teaching? Gosh, well, there's so many. I think one general one is the power of silence and how over the years I've been more and more aware of the need to create very deliberately moments where I ask students not to talk and just to think through something and process some information and 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 maybe write something in response to it, not necessarily, you know, I'm not a writing teacher. And I'm sure that's used a lot in, in, in writing classes. But I, I've, 
I think, internalized the assumption early in my career that my job was to talk and to profess, and that if I wasn't talking, it meant I, I really wasn't earning my money. I should be up front and center doing the job, you know, and I still feel that. I fight against it constantly, and I know that from a student's point of view, there are times when that's helpful, but there are also many times when it's much more helpful for them not to do something. So I've, I've become a lot more interested in nonverbal exercises in the classroom, and I use uh, social media a lot to create an anonymous back channel of communication in every class I teach. I use a tool called Today's Meet, which is free and creates a channel for students to post questions and reactions and so on. And and I read that constantly and go to that and, and work a lot from that. And and, it, and if we're actually moving into a classroom discussion, I always precede any discussion with a period of silence. I use Chalk Talk a lot, which is a visual tool where people respond to a question only in visual ways on a big chalkboard. So so that's that's been one thing that that I think I've incorporated uh, into my teaching. Uh, another that I talk about in the book is the power of former students' voices to build a case for learning to new students. So I had to teach a lot of courses early in my career uh, in study skills to to students who weren't who were deemed not ready for prime time in in terms of their academic abilities and. You know, a, a lot of people didn't like being told they were remedial, as it were, or developmental. And so so I, I realized after a while that my telling them these courses were really important wasn't um, working that well. Um, they, they really wouldn't hear me. But if I could get two or three students who were in the class beforehand and who themselves had thought this class is a waste of time, but by the end of the semester, had changed their thinking and actually come up to me and said, I'm really glad I t- took this course because now I feel much more equipped you know, to get further in my studies. And if I hadn't taken the class, I would never have got it through, got through my first year and freshman year and so on. If anyone says that to me, I like to invite them to come back and be part of a first-day panel. And I'll introduce this panel of former students, former resistors, to the new students, and I'll just tell the panel, you know, tell, tell the new students what, what you wish you had known when you were in their shoes, what you were feeling, pass on any advice when you, about how to make it in this class. And when I introduce that panel, as I say in the book, I, I walk out of the room. So often the first class of a semester, I leave the room and leave the students, which on the surface seems a very unprofessional and, and risky thing to do. But in my mind, it's definitely an act of justifiably good pedagogy because by doing that, the new students hear the former students tell them good or bad things about the class, and they can really trust the the comments that those former students are making. Whereas if I was in the room, I think that the new students would would feel it was a bit of a setup, and I was just make I was there to monitor that the former students only said good things. So there are lots of other examples that I could give, but those are two that that come immediately to mind. When people hear about new approaches like this, 
they sound so good. I mean, especially Chalk Talk. I realized I actually had done Chalk Talk without realizing that that's what it was called. But as you bring it up again, I thought, gosh, you could even incorporate that more. But one of the things that happens is we go and we try it and we think, this is going to be fabulous. This is going to be great. And what we get is resistance. Talk about how resistance plays a role in our teaching as we try to incorporate some of these new approaches and how does it relate or or maybe not to our failure as teachers? Well, I, I think that resistance is probably the thing I spent more time thinking about than any other facet of, of teaching. And that's why in the School of a Teacher, you know, I, I have chapter or maybe two, I can't remember, because I'm so much into the other book I'm working on now, but specifically dealing with resistance and, and how you respond to it. And I, I frame it not as, you know, dealing with resistance, but more responding to it. So I used to say dealing with it, but, but then I realized that dealing with it has the implication that somehow you successfully remove it from the the environment and that's not usually at least in my experience what happens uh, the resistance doesn't go away what i have to get worked out in my head is is how do i do i respond to this so that it doesn't completely derail the efforts of a majority of students in the class because sometimes resistance comes from a small minority but that can block the learning of a a much greater group of students, particularly if you get sucked into constantly trying to please a small group of hardcore resistors, which is something that I've fallen into that that particular trap in the past. Um, So I think the thing for me with resistance is getting the best insight that I can into why it's there. And that goes along generally with what I was talking about earlier, that, that, you know, treating students as adults means being interested in the experiences that they bring to the classroom. And so if I find out that resistance is due to something that's happened bureaucratically that's completely beyond my control, then I'll take a different approach to responding to it than if I find out the resistance is due to a particular personal habit of mine or my preference for a particular technique that doesn't fit, let's say, the racial or cultural background of the students that I'm working in. Like I've had over the years increasing numbers of Southeast Asian students in my classes and they've come with a certain conception of what being a good student represents which is diligently reproducing whatever the teacher says or, or demonstrates. And in my classes, if I'm asking them instead to think critically about things that I've said, and, and you know, if I say that critical thinking involves also critiquing me as the teacher, which is a very westernized conception of critical thinking, then of course there's going to be an enormous amount of resistance to that, which is not... Um, bloody-mindedness, it's just a cultural disjunction. So in the book, I try and look at all the different possible causes of resistance and say 
this is way too complex a phenomenon to think that if we adopt five best practices that we will wash our classrooms free of the stain of negativity. That's, that's a metaphor I use in the book and I really like, you know, that it's applying a, a pedagogic stain remover mm-hmm. and, and you just, you know, remove the stain. It's, 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 I think a lot of us, and I'll include myself in this, have thought of resistance as irredeemably a dirty thing. And I think a lot of resistance actually is quite justified. If I haven't built a good case for learning, uh, it doesn't surprise me that res- students are resistant to it. If I'm using a method that doesn't really match their cultural formation, it's not a surprise. If there's some racial suspicion there because I'm white and male, that's not a surprise. If I've misjudged their level of readiness and I'm asking them to do things before they're really um, equipped to do them and I really haven't laid the groundwork properly, that's another thing. Maybe I haven't modeled adequately what I'm asking them to do. So, so the way we deal with resistance for me is very, very contextual and really will depend on that initial assessment, which is why one of the other assumptions that I know we're going to look at, you know, the, the assumption that the core knowledge you need to do good work is an awareness of how students are understanding what's going on. You need to know that yeah. to make a good informed response to resistance. Yeah, one of the things you share about is that you talk about dying a hundred small deaths every time you teach a class through the practice of this constant connection with how your students are experiencing their learning and perceiving your actions. And one of the questions I actually had around that assumption is how do we protect ourselves or I guess from these hundred small deaths or is it even possible or, or valuable to do so? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I've been uh, really got interested in the dynamics of team teaching and, and how team teaching can help us or help me, I'll speak personally, keep the tendency to self-laceration in control because I do. I have a very, I'm very hard on myself as a teacher. I have this streak of perfectionism in me, which is, you know, served me well in some ways and is an absolute killer in other ways. And, And in my personal life, I suffer from depression and anxiety. And that's all bound up with this feeling that I need to be in perfect control all the time. And in my head, I'm only a good teacher if everybody leaves every class feeling like every moment was a wonderfully informative and uplifting experience in that class. And of course, that's a completely unrealistic expectation is never going to be, to, to be met, but, but it has a real hold on me. And, you know, my gosh, I've been teaching since 1970, so it's probably never going to go away. Now we're in 2016. But when I team teach, I find it really helpful, those few occasions I can have the luxury of doing this, because my partner, as I'm, you know, um, leaving the room and talking about what a terrible job I did and all the usual self-flagellating a thing that I get into, my partner will just be often a, a voice of reason and point out things that went well, 
things that I've missed will give me a different interpretation of what I thought was a maybe a, a, a critical or negative student comment will point out questions that came up on the Today's Meet feed that were really excellent and showed how someone had really understood the material at a very deep level of understanding. So, so I think the more we can bring our practice into a, a collaborative mode for multiple reasons, the, the, the better. And, and keeping yourself emotionally grounded to me is a, um, a big advantage of team teaching. And, and if I don't have team teaching, then, you know, it's just good to hear from colleagues in other settings or to read things that say, you know, this is, this is what I do and this is how I feel I screwed up. And, and if I respect those colleagues and think they have something to offer, it's so reassuring for me to hear someone that I admire say, you know, I, I really lost it here and I made a rookie mistake or I just can never seem to work out what to do in this situation. So I don't actually get a solution from that, but I feel a lot better because I realize that my experience is not unique to me as a, a flawed individual. Actually, it's a, it's a generic response to, to difficult work. This is all shaped by your final assumption, which is that skillful teachers adopt a critically reflective stance toward their practice. Would you share a little bit about what a critically reflective stance is and I guess what it is in contrast to in terms of other stances we might be tempted to adopt toward our own practice as teachers? Yeah, absolutely. Well, to me, being critically reflective means that you acknowledge that probably most of the decisions you make as a teacher, the micro decisions in the middle of a class, the more macro decisions you have about grading policies or how to construct a curriculum or develop a syllabus, you know, all those actions are based on assumptions we have about the world and, and how it works and how we're going to achieve the consequences we want to achieve. So. So being critically reflective is just the process of constantly checking your assumptions against some external data to say, you know, is this assumption, for example, that putting chairs in a circle will increase communication amongst learners and make people feel that their experiences are respected and therefore lead to deeper discussion? You know, is that a valid assumption? Just to use a very basic one that I, I've looked at a lot. And I think the way that we are able to check our assumptions is by, as I say, bringing in these external sources of data. So we get feedback from students about how they respond to the actions that we take. Do they find particular assignments, particular explanations, classroom activities, and so on, you know, the way we've sequenced a curriculum? We've done all those things, assuming it's going to be or they're going to be helpful. You know, do students have that same experience? And then I think involving colleagues, getting them to team teach with you or, or maybe observe you sometimes or just chatting with colleagues about things that are going on in your classroom. They can help you become aware of a lot of assumptions that you have and maybe you're unaware of, and they can shine a light on a situation and bring a contrasting experience 
to it. And then I think that if we read theory and research that pertains to a particular problem we're dealing with, that can provide another helpful window, a lens into our world that through which we can view our our practice and and that helps us become aware of some assumptions you know i've read a lot on the phenomenon of resistance i've read a read a lot around racial identity and communication and read a lot around power and that really helps me understand those things in uh, i think a better way when i you know take the time to do that and then the final lens is our own personal experience i think a lot of what we do springs without us acknowledging it from our experiences as students. So I know that the way that I teach, which is very much geared towards structuring maximum participation, is a result of my experiences as a student where I felt that as an introvert, I faded into the background and I never really felt that acknowledged or recognized as a student and and in fact for a while I just gave up gave up going to class and just you know read the textbooks and took the assignments and consequently didn't do very well as a student so I think critical reflection really is intentionally building in this constant scrutiny of the assumptions and just checking that the assumptions you're making about how best to foster learning are reasonable and accurate. And a lot of the time you find indeed that they are and your judgment is confirmed, which is very valuable to know. And then at other times you find that you've misread something and hopefully you can you can make an adjustment and reframe your assumptions so that it better fits the context that you're working in. Share a little bit about feeling like an imposter in your teaching yeah, well, I'm, you know, I was born in a um, very tough working class area of, of Liverpool called Bootle, Brutal Bootle, as it was known. And, you know, I've, I've never did well as a student because I can't take tests. I think it's bound up with my depression, anxiety. I just freeze in, in exam situations. Whereas if I'm allowed to take control of my learning, work at my own pace and so on, I, I do better, which is why when I eventually got to doctoral student status, I was, I was really happy because in England, that's what being a doctoral student is. You're basically in charge of your research. But, you know, I failed my master's exam. I failed to get into college initially at 18, failed my um, SATs, as it were, in England, and, and had a history of, of not doing well. So when I finally get into a teaching role, and I feel constantly like I'm one step ahead of the students. They're going to see through me. They're going to realize that I don't really know what I'm doing. And, and this is the, the hidden difficulty of team teaching, because although I love team teaching, when I team teach with a peer, I'm also aware that, oh, my God, now someone that I... I respect and admire is in the room mm-hmm. with me and, and they do the same work and they're going to realize very quickly that I don't deserve to be here. So I've had this feeling throughout my career as a teacher. And when I started talking publicly about how students feel this, which is what initially drew my attention, 
you know, adult students coming back or coming into higher ed for the first time have a lot of impostorship. And then I started thinking about, yeah, but it's not just them, it's, it's me. And then I start talking about how I feel like this and so many colleagues. I mean, one of the things that I've written about that I think has generated the greatest response, so many colleagues come to me and say, you know, when you wrote, described what it feels like to be an imposter, that's exactly exactly how I respond. And one of the signs that you know you're suffering from this is that if you have, if you're teaching 100 students in a class and you get the course evaluations and 98% of them are glowing and 2% are negative, the only ones that you think about and take seriously are the 2% of the negative ones. And part of that is because you feel that that 2% somehow are written by the smartest students in the class who've seen through your facade of assumed competence and they they realize that in fact you don't know what you're doing and so you know if if you obsess about that two percent as i do that's one of the sure signs of uh, that impostership is is you know alive and well and i think our methods of teacher evaluation uh, underscore this because you get good performance evolves, at least in my experience, when you get high student evaluations um, that basically say you did everything flawlessly and that everything you explained was clear as day and that all the pacing of the course was just right and the assignments were really helpful. And so we have this sense that good teaching is flawless performance. And most of us know that that's not who we are. You know, we try and do good work, but this is so complex, you're constantly thinking, oh, I missed that, or I need to watch out for this on Thursday. Or so, so I think that the unrealistic sense of teaching effectiveness it, it also contributes to this widespread sense of impostorship. But no one talks about it unless someone gets the ball rolling. So that's, I think, part of my job now as a, someone who's an endowed chair and, and you know, uh, has some credibility. Uh, I need to talk about this as much as I can in, in public settings. And also what I've taken away from you, too, is that while that feeling of being an imposter can be so debilitating. It also can help us to connect with our students who feel like imposters in college as well. So thank you for that just ability to at least find some good out of such a painful experience at times. Well, and, you know, I also think um, a controlled sense of impostorship is a very good thing. You know, you, I don't want to teach with someone who thinks they are flawless. Mm -hmm. I want to teach with someone who is aware of things that they don't do well because that person is always looking to do better and improve as, as hopefully I am too. So to feel that you've got this all down, I don't know, I, I think you're either in denial or you're in a, you know, a massive egomaniac. It's just that if, if impostorship, if you spend your career thinking I'm the only one who feels this way and everybody else seems to be fine, you know, that, that can become wearing and demoralizing. This is the point in the show where we each are going to give our recommendations. And 
back on episode 62, I had recommended a TED Talk by Brian Stevenson. And since then, Rebecca Campbell on the show had said that he had written a book called Just Mercy that they were using for their freshman reading group. And I ended up reading it in the last month or so. And it is a incredibly painful and hopeful book to read all at the same time. And rather than even try myself to articulate it, I'll just read what Desmond Tutu had to say about it. Brian Stevenson is America, America's young Nelson Mandela, a brilliant lawyer fighting with courage and conviction to guarantee justice for all. Just mercy should be read by people of conscience in every civilized country in the world to discover what happens when revenge and retribution replace justice and mercy. It is as gripping to read as any legal thriller, and what hangs in the balance is nothing less than the soul of a great nation. Stephen, what do you recommend today? Well, completely unrelated to teaching, I recommend a TV show called called Better Call Saul, <laughs> um, which is a precursor to the Breaking Bad series, but without so much of the violence, and is more a character study, which I find very gripping. Um, I've been reading an interesting piece I found online. In fact, it intrigued me so much, I asked my university faculty development center to send it round to everybody in, in our newsletter, and they've done that. It's by Stark and Freistadt, and it's a little article called An Evaluation of Course Evaluations. It's in Science Open, which is an open online journal, so anyone can download this. And it's, it's a piece that argues that most of the student evaluation of teaching forms that we use are statistically invalid. It's written by two statisticians. And by invalid, I mean that they don't measure the teaching effectiveness that they purport to measure. They conclude that these are statistically reliable because they tend to generate the same responses across multiple groups, but they're statistically invalid. They actually don't measure teaching effectiveness. They measure more. Um, they tell us more about students' learning. So I, that, that's a good and provocative read. Thank you so much for all of those recommendations. I watched season one of Better Call Saul and absolutely loved it and need to get on the ball for now season two. Well, there's so much good TV, you know, and I, I, my wife laughs when I say this, but I tell her we're, we're living in the golden age of television right mm -hmm. now. I just don't have enough hours in the day to binge watch all the, uh, <laughs> the series <laughs> I really want to. And like it wasn't bad enough until now Netflix and Hulu are coming up with their own original content as well. It gets even worse and better all at the That's same right. time. That's right. Yeah, I know. I just found something on Hulu and I'm thinking my wife will kill me if I say, <laughs> well, now we need to subscribe to this. Stephen, thank you so much for investing your time. I mentioned that I got to actually see you speak in person at the Lilly Conference, and that was such a thrill to just something different, I guess, about being in the room with someone and was so pleased when you actually emailed to ask for my sketch notes from that session. And then I thought I've been meaning to, to invite you back to talk about the skillful teacher and just thanks so much for you investing your Friday afternoon with me to have this conversation. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Bonnie. Anytime. 
I already recommended it on a previous episode, but just can't end this episode without once again suggesting that you go out and get yourself a copy of The Skillful Teacher. This is really just the beginning of the depth and breadth of that wonderful work. And thanks to Stephen Brookfield for all the vulnerability he showed in writing it. And thanks also to all of you who have been writing reviews on iTunes or rate, giving it a rating, whatever service that you use to listen to the show, because it really does help us just grow and connect the community. And apparently with those algorithms makes the biggest difference when you do that. So thanks to all of you who have been doing that. It's also just a joy to get to read how the show is impacting you. So thanks so much. And those of you that haven't done it yet, it's not too late. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon. Bye.